0: This is Leah Everett Burks with the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection at Michigan State University. And this is Brand Protection Stories, stories about the practice of brand protection by those who live it. In Brand Protection Stories, we talk to those in the brand protection community about particular cases in their careers. Through some stranger than fiction, real life scenarios, we learn about the practice of brand protection and the challenges faced by brand owners worldwide.
1: Coupons are really weird. They're really unusual Mm -hmm. because uh, I'm currently writing a paper about it where the coupon itself laying on the table is nothing. It's a piece of scrap paper. It has no value until it's executed, until it's used as a transactional device at the point of sale. So if I stole 700 coupons laying on your table, what's that worth? I mean, what they? they're not currency, but they become currency at the point of sale.
0: David Lake is a retired detective sergeant and a 30-year veteran of the Phoenix Police Department, specializing in organized commercial crimes. In that capacity, he conducted or directly supervised thousands of complex investigations across dozens of industries, This work led to the seizure of over $1 million in cash and contraband from a wide range of criminal organizations. During this time, David also owned several businesses in the retail and service sectors. He coupled his business experience and police expertise to conduct unique research with the Department of Justice and Arizona State University. This research focused on the business of crime, dubbed the shadow economy. Through research, David documented how shadow economy crime damages communities and contributes to urban decay. This work coupled with David's real world experience has made him an internationally recognized expert on shadow economic crime. As such, He has presented at hundreds of events to police, public, and private sector leaders from over 80 countries around the world. Now retired from public service, David is the CEO of the Center on Shadow Economics. He works with private and public sector leaders in this role, building partnerships and capacity to understand and engage the shadow economy in communities worldwide. Good morning, Dave.
1: Good morning, Leah, how are you?
0: I'm doing good, thank you. Though it was some 13 years ago, the economic breakdown, which began in 2008, doesn't really feel that far away. Many of us can remember the small and large shifts we made to our financial lives due to the crisis. Some of the standard shifts across American households were the cutting of spending on big ticket items, but also on the weekly trips to the grocery store. And maybe for the first time, looking through the local paper or the neighborhood circulars for coupons to help cut household spending. Coupons became a way to save a few cents, dollars, sometimes get free product, or in the case of Robin Ramirez, which we will discuss with you today, make millions. So Dave, our listeners have already heard your impressive bio, but for this Ramirez case, the coupon case that we're calling Operation Super Coupon, You were a case agent and a supervisor for the Phoenix Police Department. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. That was my role at the time.
0: And as I understand, within the police department, you were the only detective that worked on business issues and concerns and uh, intellectual property violations.
1: Yes, that's right. I had the role of So I had owned a business while I was a cop, I bought my first business first formal retail business with about 10 years on. And that's the time I also became a detective in property crimes. So I approached investigations, not from just the law enforcement standard of who's the victim, what was the offense, but from the business strategy, what was the business strategy of the criminal and how did that compete with legitimate business. And so I developed a specialty called organized commercial crime. I looked at not just a shoplifter, but what did the shoplifter do with the item they stole? And did that become a secondary market issue, et cetera? I built that specialty um, to the point that I became the only guy in the Property Crimes Bureau and and for the city of Phoenix that was doing advanced investigations like this. And what happened was I promoted and I took that skill set with me. Mm -hmm. and nobody backfilled because it was a unique combination of my business experience and policing. There was nobody else who had that, that experience or was interested in taking on the massive caseloads that come with that so mm-hmm. um so yeah i took it with me to be a sergeant and what happened was when the operation super coupon case came about i was approached by victims that i had developed relationships you know working working on their cases before saying could you consult with uh whatever agency because they didn't know where she was
0: Uh, I see, I see.
1: So they wanted me to consult uh, once they found her because of my skill set. And I said, well, sure, I'll I'll do that.
0: Well, it's interesting being a business owner, um, along with your law enforcement background, because you understood the business decisions behind couponing, right, or or issuing of coupons. And I think it's important to, to go through that before we walk through the case uh, because again, we're looking at a financial crisis beginning in 2008. Many uh, households were suffering, many businesses were suffering. And one way that brands and businesses try to drive loyalty is to provide some savings or some incentive for a consumer to try their product, which is the whole basis of issuing of coupons.
1: Right. so so the coupon, actually has two, two really unique functions from the eyes of a manufacturer or an issuer. Because remember, the coupon can be issued by the retailer as well. But its job is to promote brand loyalty, as you just said, or to create velocity. We need to sell more of our favorite uh, or one of our title products this quarter. So they'll push out a coupon to get more people to use it. And, and they drive that velocity, uh, meaning that normal users will use the coupon, but maybe a few new users. So they'll pick up some new uh, consumers. So it's always a tug of war between them and their competitors issuing coupons. And so basically the coupon's a marketing tool, but it had a serendipitous benefit. The manufacturer pushed it out for business purposes, but the consumer used it for budgeting purposes. And so the 2008 economic downturn led people who may have always thought of couponing as uh, food stamps, they saw them in the same way. They were for the poor. They were for the uh, uh, less affluent. You know, I would be embarrassed to use them. A lot of people would say, but 2008, that was a unique crisis that broke not only from the poor, but all the way through wall street. It was a, mm-hmm. it was a derivatives problem. So, so everybody was suddenly using them, amend. And the benefit was that you could back then, save up to 50, 60% of your monthly budget on food. And that's a huge savings for most people.
0: Absolutely. And during that time, taking off on the popularity of cost-saving measures like couponing, uh, TV networks like TLC launched um, Extreme Couponing, which was a very popular show for them, uh, which showed how people were using coupons and saving money and so forth. Um, So during this economic meltdown, families really were looking to save money. Um, But I I think it's also interesting with couponing. There is also um, a situation where I think they call it a coupon high, where people feel a great sense of accomplishment when they've when they've saved money.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I think that goes back to our hunter gatherer days. I think, you know, it was only less than 100 years ago, we had to go out and pick our food, right? Even at the grocery store, when you find good fruit, you know, so, so I think there's still that hunter gatherer aspect that comes from providing something for your, your tribe or your home. That comes from good selection, good planning, good hunting, and uh, so it does. It does release endorphins for a lot of people. The same as getting a, getting a good deal or even a job promotion, it makes you feel like you've done something well. And um, for some people, it's an addiction, though. Some people, I mean, they really go to extremes on sure. this. Now, the, now the extreme couponing TV show was a very interesting anomaly because we don't know what came first. We don't you could not achieve the deals that they were achieving in that show by using coupons um, appropriately or uh-huh. and so there were numerous times in that coupon show that it came up uh, that, that the counterfeits had been identified. whether the I'm not saying that TLC knew it, I'm not saying that the producers knew it. But the achievements that they had were able to make were not replicatable using coupons properly.
0: Legitimate coupons. So it was unrealistic results.
1: Right. Which drove millions of people into the couponing
0: mm-hmm. world.
1: And they broke into two directions. Those who said, okay, I'm making the savings. I can't do that, but I'm making a savings. Thank you for the renewed interest in this or the new interest in it. And those who said, so what do I have to do to get those savings? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is right. how Robin Ramirez grew to fame.
0: Right. And I think probably our listeners are, are, are starting uh, to recognize possibly this storyline. Uh, there was a recent comedy that was issued or issued that was produced um, called Queen Pins, which I kind of categorize as kind of a madcap buddy comedy. Mm -hmm. um, inspired by real events, which is the qualifier for Hollywood. Um, but I did find it interesting in watching this movie that was inspired by these events that, uh, that they even acknowledged this was a crime. Um, you know, the perpetrators knew it was a crime. They, you know, were, were committing criminal activity, making a lot of money. Um, so even though the, you know, the fun comedy of it, um, I think it, it did come through that a crime was being committed and there were victims.
1: Agita um, Pulapilli and Aaron Godet are the writers uh, and produce, um, directors who I got to meet. Uh, they interviewed me, and we shared, and we've actually become friends over the years. I, I just love them; they're wonderful people. And they just wanted to make something funny, so they thought this was unusual. And they made something funny, and it is a fun story. Um, and because they're such loving people, they didn't want anybody to seem hurt. So, you know, she didn't get life in prison in the movie, or, or um, you know, there was it was just fun. And if everybody takes it as just fun, they've done a good job. Um, but They did recognize it was a crime when we talked about it. They just thought that was too heavy for a comedy, but Mm -hmm. they as writers recognize it's a crime and everybody should recognize that, that fraud is a crime. Um, it's just coupons are really weird. They're really unusual Mm -hmm. because, uh, I, I'm currently writing a paper about it where the coupon itself laying on the table is nothing. It's a piece of scrap paper. It has no value until it's executed, until it's used as a transactional device at the point of sale. So if I stole 700 coupons laying on your table, what's that worth? I mean, what did they, they're not currency, but they become currency at the point of sale. And that takes them into a different world. They become like a check written on the account of the issuer. And now you're into a fascinating world where we have no, I mean, every other financial instrument out there has regulatory oversight, except coupons.
0: Right. I mean, there's no institutional protections for right. them, exactly. but, you know, it brings it into the realm of counterfeit violations because you've got brand names on those coupons. You've One got sense. their trademarks on those coupons. So that's where it becomes counterfeiting. But, but you're right, it's not currency, so you can't call the Department of Treasury and get them to, to help with these types of situations. Um, and I think that's where Robin Ramirez maybe got a little bit caught up in, well, I'm just copying coupons. And I think too, the consumer in using, or some of the people that were involved in using the counterfeit coupons, Thought, well, they have to be legitimate because they're scanning at the register.
1: Right, the famous if it scans, it's if it scans, it's good.
0: The discipline of brand protection is derived out of trademark law, since counterfeiting is a violation of trademark rights. It's important to remember that these laws are set up regionally throughout the world to protect the consumer. Yes. Trademarks are assets of companies, but they tell the consumer the source of the goods and provide the assurance of origin. But brand protection isn't only the responsibility of the legal profession, it's multidisciplinary by nature and necessity. People find themselves in this field from such diverse career paths as security, supply chain, law enforcement, marketing, IT, Finance and yes, legal, as well as many more.
1: The the truth is, uh, when I did the case, and, and the way I teach my investigators. Um, so in in the Robin Ramirez case. Um, For a little context, I was running a patrol squad. I had transferred out of detectives and I'm now a sergeant running a patrol squad. 911, what's your emergency? That was us, we ran out there. So this was way outside of our line of of responsibility. This isn't what patrol officers do. They don't do advanced uh, organized commercial crime cases. But when the case was determined, when the private sector did their work and said, hey, wait, these people are in Phoenix. I said, okay. I went up the chain of command and said, does property crimes don't want it? Well, those detectives are overwhelmed. They're working a thousand cases a day, a month. They don't want something this complex. So, which is why I did them when I was there. So I went to the chain of command and said I have a great teaching opportunity. My officers had between one and three years on the department. This is a case that for most of them, they'll never, I did many of these cases just so you know, for many industries, it was my specialty. But I said, I have an opportunity to teach them a unique specialty, can we do it? So they authorized us to do it on our days off so that it didn't interfere with our 911 responses. Mm -hmm. So what happened was interesting. There was only a small budget for overtime, which is what we'd be doing our days off. So I agreed to do it for free. So I did all of my work. I I just did it for free for the and all of my officers um, and they were all great officers, worked we were able to pay them but they gave up their days off to come in and work the case Mm. and so what we were looking at and what we were building and, and what what I taught them is very important for the listener it's not that you made a mistake I won't arrest you for a mistake in fact it's my job to do what I call I teach my officers to investigate to innocence prove that this person didn't do the crime you think they did because if you can't, then the evidence that they did do it will be in your lap. But if you're only looking myopically for guilt, you'll get, you'll, you'll get innocent people. So what we did is we looked at Robin Ramirez and we looked at some of her users and we said, when are we beyond accidental? When you do what Robin did, one of the things she did is she, she had layer after layer of fake identity. Mm. That's not a step that we would take if we just stumbled across something. Right. She screened. So what I teach them is to take three to five things that cannot be explained any other way. <laughs> for example, if if I'm a retailer and I'm selling a legitimate product, I don't screen my buyers. But she made sure that you had to be referred into her network and somebody had to vouch for you. Mm-hmm. That that's not a normal retail process. So it was things like that that we use to, to remove the I innocently stumbled into this, right? And we,
0: right. You know? and then and then the obvious. Um, you know, she had uh, uh, very sophisticated printing capabilities for the coupons, right? Yes. Yes. So um,
1: she—that's a major, major um, determination. So first of all, there's no circumstance where you legitimately reproduce these. There's just not mm-hmm. There's at this point, intellectually, you think this will function as a check written on the account of the issuer once I use it at the point of sale. So for you to find your neighbor's checkbook and mass produce those, you know, that's wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. So exactly.
1: it makes yeah. it very clear that she uh, and that printing capability, that advanced printing capability. Was only possible because a printer was willing to violate state and federal laws to do it. So, or or international laws even around counterfeiting. So she had some unusual level help that that wouldn't most printers. If you showed up with a trademarked item and said, "I'd like you to reproduce this,"
0: (laughs) yeah, they would say no. Yeah, right. right. And then then as you indicated, the referral network. So she was. only allowed referrals for I guess I guess you would consider these people distributors um, of the coupons, and that's how she was getting her money. Right, was being bringing people into the the coupon business, selling the coupons, and then getting referrals in, and it, it, and it kept building. So so as as you indicated, you're you're doing this on your time off and using it as a as a training tool for your officers. How did it come to your attention and how did, how did the case develop?
1: Well, the beautiful thing is, um, and it's, it's sometimes I get sad that this is the necessity, but it is a reality. The private sector recognized that there were being a victims um, and they, one of the corporations I, I'm, I can say it's Procter and Gamble took the lead and they said, you know what, we're losing too much money. So they, took the lead to go find it. They worked with a wonderful group of people. I have to say, uh, Chris Buckner and the people out of Investigative Consultants in California and i they're a private sector group that represents a lot of brands on counterfeit. He and I had been working together in developing Arizona's uh, counterfeit enforcement program because counterfeit was relatively new. It's a relatively new organized commercial crime for law enforcement in general. Uh, we always used to see that as a business, civil matter, but it's not. It's, it's part of a major organized crime effort. And so he and I were building that, him on the private sector. Well, they took over and they were, Procter & Gamble worked with Chris Buckner, uh, DJ Smith at Procter & Gamble, and they pushed this case to the point that they had almost identified her. We think we know where Melissa Walters was her, her uh, name. By the way, that name shows up when they in the movie uh it's actually an easter egg in the movie when she gets oh. all of her fake ids from uh from the lady she uh one of them is melissa walters because that was really one of her fake ids and so they think they've got her tracked down and it's in phoenix well it turns out that while they're doing that simultaneously for two years the uh, there was a federal agency who had been sitting on this not sitting they had been struggling with the mate with this case, trying to find it because she was so well hidden. um, And they didn't have a lot of resources. And so that part in the movie where uh, the the store clerk is calling the FBI, but in this case, it's just different. It's a federal agency. I don't want to put them on uh, notice, but uh, but they had been struggling for two years in the Phoenix office because they had been notified by the Coupon Information Center of this problem. Well, that had dead-ended, so here the private sector went on their own, and I, I, took the, I found out she's in Phoenix. I found that there was a federal case, and I went into the federal agents and said, would you mind a little help? Can we work together? And they said, whatever you need to do. Well, we're specialists in digging through the trash and getting in the mud and stuff like that. We're, at, we're specialists at the one-feet view. And a lot of federal agencies are specialists at a little higher level of policing. So we were able to work together to complement each other. And um, we did it. In, um, they had been stuck for about two years. But because of the information we have from the private sector and our own specific skill set uh, and some cooperation between all three parties, we were able to finish it in eight weeks. And wow, so that
0: it, is fast to pull it, it together.
1: It is fast and, and part of it has to do with a lot of experience. Part of it has to do with the tremendous help from the private sector. Um, and then um, we had, uh, you know, there was what was really interesting about it was when you approach it from a business standpoint, the evidence you're looking for changes, it changes. Now we're looking at business processes and business processes are a lot easier to find although they take a little more time. Then some of the more nuanced stuff, like, you know, does she know that she is uh, producing trademarked items mm-hmm. that can be a little more cumbersome? You know, yes, she knows, obviously it's written all over, but now you've got to find a printer. you got to do stuff. But when you, <clears throat> when you're looking at business stuff, where is she banking? Where is she spending her money? That stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the reason it took eight weeks is because we started writing search warrants. So we, I used a detective, her, uh, Sarah Garza, I, I had, Uh, went in and asked if I could get somebody to focus on her money. Well, they didn't have anybody at the money laundering people, the Southwest borderline lines, because they're all focused on cartels. So we transplanted, we took Detective Garza. And I said, if I put the body there, will you teach her? And so we were able to move that. So the department was helpful. Uh, Even though nobody knew what this was, we put her there and she was able to write subpoenas. Well, those subpoenas take 30 days to get back so that's why it took eight weeks we had robin pinned down in the first 30 days it took us another 30 days took just to get the evidence for yeah. the
0: process for the process for all the
1: banking material stuff but she did a great job on that and then um uh here i took uh, these i think i took a total it was a total of 40 officers 12 13 14 of them were mine uh patrol officers and then we had extra help and we went in and uh, did a three location raid So
0: so walk us through that. You know, I know you're talking about the financial aspect and and that investigation. Um, She had acquired quite a bit of wealth and and had done quite a bit of extravagant spending that you were able to to locate some of those items that were red flags when they were located, that something was going on here. Someone doesn't pay two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a car cash. Um, but but walk us through this raid. Um, paint a picture for us. What what did it look like? Well.
1: Um- What we did is we figured out that there were three locations and the working with the, the, you know, they have the Postal Inspectors in the movie and that's mostly a funny, because Postal Inspectors are funnier than Phoenix Police Department. But in reality, the Postal Inspectors did play a role uh, in helping us figure out some of her mailing patterns because we had tracked her down. We analyzed her business process. We've determined vulnerabilities would allow us to intercept her business processes which helped us identify her patterns. It's a complex issue. Uh, It's advanced investigative techniques and it's a way of looking at businesses differently or crime differently, looking at it as a business. So when we did that, we were able to um, identify some gaps that other agencies could fill. So the Postal Inspectors helped us. So what we found was that she was operating from she had her house, which functioned as her business. And then she had another location, just like in the movie, a drop house or a, a stash house where she actually operated the fulfillment of the orders. So there she had mountains of coupons that were used to fulfill the orders. And then there was another uh, one of her co-defendants, Marilyn. Um, uh, so so in, the, in the stash house was a, uh, a chiropractor who uh, had started making money from her filling the coupon uh, orders and she was able to live in the stash house to guard or be aware you know watch all the all the coupons while uh, and then uh-huh. fill the orders during the day and then Marilyn who uh, was a buyer of coupons because she uh, did some dog training and she would use dog food coupons to with her customers actually got involved as well so so we were able to show that all three people knew something was wrong and one of the ways we could show it is that They would actually be sticking security labels, um, holograms onto the stickers as part of the process. So if you have to assemble something that's supposed to be legitimate and you're the one assembling it, there's an obvious indication you're wrong. Right. So, so, for example, you can say, I didn't know this purse was counterfeit. But if you're the one that put the brand logo on the purse, you don't get to say,
0: you that know, right. You know. And
1: so, so we did that. And uh, we, so what we did on the execution day or, or search warrant execution day is we targeted those three locations her house, the brand, uh, the stash house, and Marilyn's house. And so I sent officers, SWAT teams, uh, neighborhood enforcement support officers uh, out into all three. And at 6 a.m., Six oh one, we uh, we entered into their homes. Uh, it went well. We were uh, we did in fact use the SWAT team, which is kind of unusual. On uh, we try try not to use that level of force unless we have drug dealers reinforced homes. Uh, we actually have three tiers, and this was more of a, normally something like this might be a tier one, which means my team could do it, but my team of patrol officers wasn't qualified, number one, and number two, we had noticed that they purchased a lot of guns.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: and when you see that, when you see that they bought a lot of guns in a short period of time, it's reasonable to believe they have access to all those guns, and at that point, I have to weigh the safety of everybody involved and send in the specialists. So our SWAT team is specialists and they enter and they take control of the situation.
0: Counterfeiting can be lucrative, but in many jurisdictions, prosecution results only in low penalties. Therefore, it attracts a wide spectrum of criminals from out of garage sellers, sophisticated networks funding terrorism and what is counterfeited just about everything so as i understand what was recovered was about 40 million in coupons um it as you said it was a very organized business so their turnover of inventory was every few months so I think it equated to about 160 million a year in operations for, for these five years that she was in operation.
1: So yes, that's a good point. So so at the at the main house we seized assets, guns, cars, toys. At the at the stash house we seized the the business tools, what we call the KPIs, the key profit instruments. So the key profit instrument being the coupons, we seized those. So in one room. Uh, she's got coupons stacked for to ceiling. How did we come to a $40 million valuation on that? I took a hundred coupons from each box. I wrote down the value. I weighed the coupons, the hundred. Then we took all the coupons out of the box. We weighed the box. Now we know the weight of the box, weigh the coupons. We put all of them together and that's how we can tell how many are in there, right? So, so if a hundred weighs one ounce and I've got four pounds in there. I know how much they're worth. And so Mm -hmm. we were actually get to 40 million. Well, what we did is talking to her. She said that she goes through that room about every 90 days. Now, what's interesting and what, what, uh, the readers or the listeners should know is that she was just trundling along as a normal business. We have all her business records. We have all of them. And so we looked and we could see that she was just making, you know, 20, $30,000 a month up until the extreme couponing series. Right in two thousand and ten, she went to three hundred thousand a month. Quite
0: and a spike.
1: Yes, because she had free advertising, and so and so all of a sudden she got overwhelmed, and she's got to produce, and she's she's selling these things as fast she can, and she can't deal with all that money. And so there are we go to the bank, and we say uh, at the bank I say you know she was putting money. In. Well, actually Sarah went, and the bank ladies. She said she's coming in with cash. We can see her deposits. She's putting fifty thousand dollars a day in the bank account sometimes, and some days she's walking in with baskets of money. Why didn't you tell the officials that this was unusual? Now she looked like such a nice lady, mm, and so mm. and so. The point is, we found the the the, the um, we found all those coupons there. And we could see her damage. We found toys at her house. Marilyn's house was treated as a separate, you know, because she had her own little things going on there. But then in all of our negotiations, we're, we're interviewing her husband. And he says, well, have you been to the hangar? We didn't know about a hangar. And just like in the movie, we go to the hangar and they've got a 30-foot speedboat. They've got a multi-million dollar, two of them actually, uh, motorhomes. They have more stuff than you can imagine. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, I believe that our we see 2.5 million in assets. One of which you alluded to was the uh, 1957 Chevy Corvette convertible that cost $250,000 cash that they bought.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, yeah. and
0: I think it was a total of six homes that yeah. were owned or in that number. Yeah, no, um, she bought
1: it. She started buying a street. She started buying all the houses on one street. Um, because you know, if you're going to make a ton of money, you really should bury it in in, uh, uh, the two best places to, to sink money is guns and, uh, because they never lose their value and real estate. So so she, cars are kind of a bad investment because in fact that $250,000 car, we ended up destroying it because it was made up of many stolen cars. It was a Uh, a Franklin car, but we did sell one of her cars, a nine, uh, a a Corvette that they had, or a Camaro that they had customized as a pace car for, um, for NASCAR. So, you know.
0: So (laughs) so it had some value.
1: Yeah, yeah, some stuff had value, but for the most part, uh, somewhere along the line, she got advice to buy real estate and guns.
0: Okay, okay. And with the cars, I, I I think that there's a you know in the movie they they showed the Lamborghinis, um, but in her purchasing of the cars, I think she also ran into an issue of where to put them, and started parking them around Phoenix, and maybe they didn't fit into the streets that they were parked on, which was an interesting indicator. Um, I think to law enforcement that there was something going on.
1: Well, we did what we did is we sent um, at one point we had the helicopter fly around the neighborhoods because we started the real. We were asking her, "We're finding the titles. Where's this car? I don't remember where I put it." Is she just parking them around the neighborhoods, and so you you know in a neighborhood park where there's swing sets, here's a uh, six sixty eighty thousand dollar even in one case a hundred and fifty thousand dollar car just sitting on the side of the road collecting dust, and it's not stolen, you know. Police officers go through and run the license plate; it's not stolen, uh, but she just didn't have enough parking for them all, and she was paying to park. I think she had so many cars. I mean, it was unbelievable. She even had a 18-wheeler converted into a three-car garage, the trailer, with the mm. front part being a uh, being a luxury palace, basically Italian tile and, and crystal chandeliers in the cab of the 18-wheeler. And then the back was a three-car garage. And neither one of them were qualified to drive it nine feet. It oh. needs a special you right. know, a CDL driver's license. And we sold that to NASCAR too. But the point is, um, you know, we take that money We recover the money. We try to give it back to the victims who will take it. Uh, That's for for asset forfeiture. When you do these cases, traditional asset forfeiture is used to take drug money, and there's no victim at the end of that. So the government tends to use it for operations under RICO to, to help fight other drug cases. In organized commercial crime, we use asset forfeiture, and this is important. We use asset forfeiture to make victims whole. Mm-hmm. We try to recoup as much as money from the criminal organizations, identify victims and give them the money if, we, if they'll take it. Um, some corporations can't take it because it's a bottom line issue. But for the most part, we, uh, we use asset forfeiture differently to help make victims whole, And that's mm-hmm. an important distinction because asset forfeiture currently is being questioned for its value.
0: You know? mm-hmm. Right, right. But, uh, so- counterfeit, and let me
1: just make this point, Leah, counterfeit is one of the cases that that you guys focus on counterfeit where you are. Counterfeit allows asset forfeiture and it's critical that asset forfeiture remain a tool because counterfeit allows uh, asset, because of the charge of counterfeit allows asset forfeiture to be used and asset forfeiture used in that context can be used to help the brand holders.
0: As Dave indicates, asset forfeiture is a legal mechanism to right the wrong of financial damage caused by criminal activity. As Chris Horn indicated in the podcast on music bootlegging, number eight of Brand Protection Stories, the UK utilizes the Proceeds of Crime Act, which as with forfeiture in the US, is intended for the proceeds of crime or assets derived from criminal acts to be returned to the victims or help fund fraud investigations including those involving counterfeits so it so in 2012 Robin was uh, sentenced to I believe two years in prison um, plus I th- I think five years probation, it's considered a, a white collar crime, but she was also, as you talked about the forfeitures, um, but she was also required to pay back in restitution 1.5 million. Um, as you indicated, you know, the criminal activity was deep. She had multiple identities, financial fraud, in addition to uh, counterfeit and, and trademark violations. Um, so fraud, forgery, counterfeit of marks and so forth, um, is what she was prosecuted for. Um, and again, as, as you mentioned, there was some restitution and some forfeiture for the brand owners. And I think also what's important to think about is, is the result, um, of this case with respect to the landscape of couponing. A lot of companies suffered because of Robin Ramirez and her, her operation financially and no longer issue high value coupons. Um, and if we think about that, and as we talked about on the outset of this podcast, there's a, a number of, uh, of people that rely on coupons to help make ends meet. And so, as a result of this case and other criminal activity like it, uh, coupons have been reduced by corporations and brands. So, it's no longer, I think the TLC extreme couponing show was canceled, um, and we just don't see those high-value coupons anymore in circulars because of this case.
1: Right, and you, you actually touch on two different things that I should address. One, her sentencing was unfortunate. Uh, behind the scenes story is the prosecutor that had it was a veteran prosecutor and he was so good at what he did right before we made the arrest and I love the guy fantastic prosecutor he got promoted and so they brought in a new prosecutor and here you have a new prosecutor that's about to handle one of the largest complex crimes you can do and he did the best he could for himself to navigate that. And I think it got overwhelmed. And so they entered into a plea agreement that was largely uh, uh, spoken against. A lot, I mean there was huge media cover coverage. All kinds of people came out and said this is a travesty of justice. And it was. But You know, it wasn't that way because like in the TV show, the victims didn't care. It wasn't that way because uh, corporations win no matter what. That's that was all Hollywood. The truth is there was a mismatch between the complexity of this case, the way his supervisors understood it and what his skill set was. And some things happened that were unfortunate. And that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Having said that, um. She does have to pay back the, the $1.5 million. And if, if I want to tell you, if you want to hear something that will horrify what I tease my millennial children with is white collar crime probation standards. You're not allowed to own a computer. Mm. <laughs> so, so can you imagine that your phone you can't have a phone that can have access to the internet under mm-hmm. white collar crime. I mean, that's, I mean, you might as well put these people in a box, you know, it's, mm-hmm. very, so there may be some more anguish in there than most people realize rather than a prison sentence having five years. You can't have a, you can't have a smartphone.
0: You know? sounds Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so could you
1: imagine, you can't text them. Can't
0: imagine can you imagine? Functioning.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, I don't, I don't make light of it, but the point is there was uh, it was unfortunate. Now, when you talk about the coupon change, the industry looked around and said, our model of couponing is based off trust it's based off trust we don't have a banking system and bank fraud investigators and everybody protecting our system it's you used it the way you were supposed to the retailer submitted it the way it was supposed to and we'll pay everybody but when the trust is broken they didn't have a mechanism and so their their only solution was to contract and so assuming we have a lot of young listeners because you're at a university back in the day, we had triple coupon days and double coupon offers. Yes, and Remember and you, them
0: well. Yes. And
1: you could stack, you could stack coupons and, and offers were as much as $3 off on a product, et cetera. Well, guess what? We will have another economic downturn and these things won't be there for you it
0: because be. they can't
1: afford them. The trust was broken. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some good news. The good news is, is that they're working on technological solutions like blockchain and positive offer files and everything else that one day, it, if they can remove the trust factor and they can use digital or technological uh, checks and balances, we may see those offers come back. So it's for, in my mind, there's a race. Which will come first? The need, the, the economic downturn, because we have them. I got bad news for everybody they happen and they're going to happen again and coupons have always been there to help but they're not there to help this time so will they be there to help because technology has made it possible or will the economic downturn come first and we're we're in a foot race because to be honest with you the the, the one of the, the second most expensive purchase most people make is food mm-hmm. they may, i mean they they make their house payment and their car but they're discretion, not discretionary, but the, the bubble, the one that can be flexed up and down the most is food. You can't get a coupon for your, your house payment, but you could mitigate your living expenses. And so mm. what she did, if there was a moral equivalent, I, I don't know what the moral equivalent would be, but if you look at it from a moral standpoint, the true destruction was the removal of coupons from our social system, our, our communities, that that removal, that degradation, that used to be there to help people, isn't there anymore, and that just mm-hmm. that I don't know how to explain how many lives you affected.
0: Yeah, you know, it's 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 tragic. It is tragic. It really is. Yeah. Well, and and that leads us to my my final question for you, Dave. Uh, and we may have already zeroed in on it, but if you can select one word to describe this fascinating case. What would it be?
1: Well, I think you did zero on it. I actually wrote it down when we were talking, but tragic. I truly see the damage as tragic. And the idea that people would say it's victimless. Oh, it's victimless. It's just paper. Corporations somehow can stay in business and lose millions of dollars, which is childish in its it's concept. But the the idea that you committed a crime that will deprive families for generations. You know, back in 2008, in the worst economic downturn that this generation has seen, people were still able to save enough money to reprioritize and come home from, some, some parents were coming home from work, well, you know, they, they would drop one job because they could save enough. Others were able to rebuild their savings and none of that is going to be possible again, not in this current situation. So, so if, You look at the ripple effect of what she did, and you're mature enough to think beyond just dollars and cents and start thinking about people. It was absolutely tragic.
0: I agree. Well, thank you, Dave, for joining us uh, for an episode of Brand Protection Stories, and thank you for doing the hard work.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful.
0: As a businessman, Dave Lake may have had a particular insight into the damage counterfeiting causes. And as a law enforcement professional, obviously recognize the importance of training officers to investigate organized commercial and property crimes. Many municipal police organizations do not have the benefit of such exposure to fully appreciate the damage counterfeiting can cause even from the counterfeiting of coupons, which will have a long-term economic effect on American households. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Brand Protection Stories, please contact ACAP Assistant Director Carrie Camel at kkammel at msu.edu. In the next episode of Brand Protection Stories, I talk with two guests, Roy Albiani, and Yael Adami, from the Global Brand Protection Team for Medical Devices at Johnson & Johnson. They will take us through an international case spanning nine countries that resulted in the conviction of a gray market wholesaler in the United States who was selling under the guise of distributing Surgicel, a topical absorbable hemostat used to control bleeding in surgical procedures The discovery of the counterfeiting of this product was made by a neurosurgeon when he opened the pouch containing the product and noticed that it wasn't folded properly. When was this discovery made? While his patient lay on the operating table, awaiting brain surgery. Thanks for joining us today for this edition of Brand Protection Stories, produced by the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection or ACAP at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Please visit us at a-capp.msu.edu. ACAP is a nonprofit organization founded in 2009. It is the first and only academic body focusing on the complex global issues of anti-counterfeiting and product protection of all products across all industries and in all markets. In addition to this series, we offer certificate courses in brand protection, applied education and academic courses, executive education, student internships, live summits and virtual events, groundbreaking research and publish the quarterly digital industry journal, The Brand Protection Professional. This is Leah Everett Burks with ACAP, Until our next session, keep protecting your brands and the world's consumers. Keep it real.